0: How many of you have heard about Jonah and a big fish, either in Sunday school or read about it in a children's Bible? Yeah, we've heard that story. Uh, The world knows that story. Even unbelievers know that we believe that some man got swallowed by a fish, he disobeyed God, and then God sent him on his way. Uh, They they get the general idea of the story. But I want you to set aside those thoughts today because I want to shine some light on the story of Jonah and on the city in which he was called to minister, that city of Nineveh. I think that if we read with our spiritual eyes open, we will see today clearly some similarities between Jonah and ourself. That's the place that I want us to be at today. And I think that we'll ask ourselves some questions throughout the message. And maybe at the end, as I challenge you, with the help of the Holy Spirit... Ask yourself some questions as we go through this message today. Where do we see ourselves in Jonah's shoes? The truth about Jonah is it's a story about a rebellious prophet. It's the only book of its kind inside of God's word that highlights the character and the rebellious nature and behavior of a prophet who was called by God who seems to actually hate God. Because God loves his enemies. How many of you have ever had an enemy? Raise your hand. I don't care if you're new first time. We've all had an enemy. And if that's you today, then this message applies to you. So Jonah is unique among the prophets of the Old Testament because they're typically collections of words that get spoken to the people of God. And they get spoken to the prophet so that he can go and give the message to the people. But this book doesn't actually focus. In fact, if you're struggling to find in the four chapters of Jonah, his message, it's in Hebrew five words long. That's the only statement he really makes to the city that he's called to. Five words in Hebrew. It's about nine or ten in English, and we'll I'll share that with you in a few minutes, but it doesn't focus on the words of the prophet. It focuses the story on him himself. So Jonah appears only one other time, and maybe you didn't realize this. Jonah appears another place in scripture. Now, if you're a student of the Bible and you're familiar with the New Testament, you know some things about um, the days of Noah that are mentioned and other things, but There is a point in scripture in 2 Kings chapter 14 where Jonah is actually mentioned. He's mentioned there because he is living during the reign of a king called Jeroboam II. He was one of Israel's worst kings who ever ruled. That's what the Bible says about Jeroboam. And Jonah comes... Onto the scene, and he prophesies to Jeroboam the second, and he says these words All of the cities that you've lost in the kingdom, you will regain them in the name of God. This is God's will. He's going to do it. He prophesied in the king's favor, but another prophet, a few chapters later, undid the words of Jonah and said, Not so much that Jonah's a liar. But God has chosen to make sure because of your wickedness, you will not have victory. That prophet's name was Amos. So the Bible isn't chronological. Uh, I don't know if you figured that out. How many of you have ever seen a chronological Bible? Have you you ever done that? I've read through the Bible in a year, and it was a chronological Bible. um, And it was really neat how all of it lines up. But when it was put together, it wasn't put there chronologically. So you might be wondering, wait, I thought Jonah was like just before Jesus. Well, if you're looking at the timeline of history, he actually was a little bit further back than that during the days of this other king. So chapters 1 and 3 of Jonah tell us the story of Jonah's encounter with these people who are non-Israelites. Don't jump ahead in the story. I know you know the story, and he got on a boat, and the guy said, why is the storm here? And he got thrown off. Just follow along. The first and the third chapter tell about those people and what their response was. It was some sailors, then it was Jonah's enemies, the Ninevites, and... These chapters show the contrast, which is very strange, that Jonah is the one who 's living in disobedience, and the sailors who have just thrown him, committed a homicide, thrown him into the sea stand and worship the God of all creation because he 's calmed the storm in their life so this is this dichotomy or this this uh, contrast is there. It's almost like the story is satire because everybody's playing opposite roles. It's like opposite day. So Jonah, and we'll get a little bit further into the whole throwing him over the boat, but he was selfish. And these pagans that he's dealing with are humbling themselves and they're repenting. The Bible actually says that they turned to the God of heaven and began to worship him. Then chapters 2 and 4 contain prayers of Jonah. I don't know about you, but I've prayed some not A-plus prayers in my life. How many of you have ever just uttered something to the Lord and you thought, gosh, that sounded stupid? (laughs) Right? Right? How many of you have ever been praying and you're in a group of people and something happens and you're just like, you vomit out of the mouth and you're like, was that a prayer? I don't know what I just said. You know? So, Jonah's prayers are recorded in chapters two and four. One is a prayer of repentance, kind of. And the other is a prayer where God, where Jonah is having a conversation with God and he's chewing God out. Don't see yourself in this part of the story yet, okay? But he's, he's angry. He's mad at God and he chews him out for being too nice, So these people, these characters, are doing the opposite of what you think that they should do. You have this prophet who rebels and seems to hate the way that God behaves. You have the sailors who are supposed to be really immoral. I mean, have you ever met a sailor? (laughs) Yeah, sorry. Uh, if you're here today, but like the stereotypical nature, okay, is that they're just kind of wild and woolly. They live according to their own set of rules and all that stuff. They're immoral characters in this sort of idea that is present, but yet they behave as moral people with soft hearts towards God. And then you have a king, the king who sits in Nineveh, who is the king of a, of a place called Assyria. If you're a student of history, I love history. I'm sorry if I bore you with this, but there are several large kingdoms that are mentioned throughout the word of God. They line up historically with historical records in the world today. And Assyria was one of the first great superpowers. And its capital city was this city on a river called Nineveh. So the king hears that there's a prophet in town, gave this five-word message. The message gets to the king, and the king himself repents. In fact, if you've read the story of Jonah, you've probably missed this. The Bible actually says that cows repented. Read it. It's only four chapters. It literally says to dress the animals and the people in sackcloth and ashes and to repent. It's a very, very interesting story. So I want us to dive into Jonah chapter 1 today. And I want us to read some passages as we go through the book quickly and ask ourselves some questions. If you're familiar with the story, the story opens as God addresses Jonah and commissions him to go preach against the evil injustice in Nineveh. Look up at me for just a moment. I want you to understand something so significant that is happening in this story. This is the first recorded missions commission. Up until this point, it's been God's people, God's people, God's people, DNA, you're born into it, God's people, you're God's people. Now all of a sudden, Jonah's been commissioned to go to this enemy place And preach and share with them the hope of the God of Israel. If you want to find it on a map, just so that you're thinking, Nineveh is a real place that really exists. Today, you can go to a place called Mazul, I guess is how you say it, in Iraq. And if you're looking at a map, and if Israel's down here, it's nearly a thousand miles on land, not by ship, Jonah, On land, this way. Jonah chapter 1 verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Now, even though the book's called Jonah, we don't actually think Jonah would have written this about himself, okay? This is the story of Jonah, but I don't know that any of us would write a story that was so vulnerable about our mistakes and mishaps. Did you notice that? Twice in that place, it says that he was running from the presence of the Lord. So, imagine a map, just like I just showed you, Israel being right here, Mosul or Nineveh being up here. And what Jonah does is gets on a boat to sail to Tarshish. He's trying to go as far away as he can. He was commissioned by God, though, to be a missionary to Nineveh. And this, you have to really wrap your mind around it, was not a common thing prior to Christ's life and death and resurrection on the earth. Yes, Jesus Christ commissioned us commissioned them to go into all the world, and that's how we know that we are part of the family of God now. But Nineveh, being a pagan city and a pagan kingdom, it's, it, it was uncanny, or un, it was uncommon. The big question here is, why would Jonah run? Why would you run? Maybe there's thoughts going through his mind of, This is the first time this ever happened and God hasn't really totally explained himself. Why am I going to an enemy territory to preach about him? Maybe he's afraid of what they'll do to him when he gets there and he preaches a message that is, you know, kind of doom and gloom for them. Maybe he just doesn't like Ninevites. Maybe a Ninevite killed his dad. I don't know. Like, I'm not really sure. And the Bible doesn't tell us in this first part. We find the answer later. And it actually is that Jonah is really actually angry at God for having called him. So let me ask you this question. This question is a question to consider as part of the application of the message today. And I want you to honestly answer it inside of yourself. Have you ever tried to run from God? I know I have. But you see, running from God is futile. It's it's bound to fail, and it's bound to have some really bad ramifications. In fact, I believe that even today, and those joining us online, there may be someone here who is running from God comprehensively. That means you're away from God. You haven't known his love, his mercy, his grace. You haven't accepted him, and today is the day of salvation. You can make that change today. But for the majority that are here that are believers, you can still be running from God. Maybe not comprehensively, but in a certain area of your life that you've compartmentalized and that you've set aside and does this, is this ringing a bell with anybody? We've all run from God. Adam and Eve ran from God. Do you remember the story? Jonah has now run from God and you have to, I have to. Jonah boards the ship in throughout chapter one, the end of chapter one into two, he goes down into the ship and he falls asleep. God sends this huge storm. And it's so interesting to me that the sailors who are trained sailors, they're skilled sailors. So they must've studied maps, sort of known the weather. They didn't have a forecast weather person and that kind of thing, but they could, you know, this kind of thing and whatever it, It seems to me like their response is there shouldn't have been a storm. Something really is amiss. So they actually discern that something bigger is happening and taking place. There's a divine power at work. So they throw the dice and they listen to Jonah when Jonah says that he needs to be thrown overboard. Which you might think, and I think I thought this way when I was a kid. Well, gee, that's really noble. He's saving those people's lives. This is awesome. He's the man of God. Well, I know he's made some mistakes, but, but if you really think about it, it was the most selfish thing he could ever do. Good. I'm never going to Nineveh. Let a shark eat me. Right? If you're thinking through, like maybe what went through his head, it's really, truly selfish, beyond selfish, But these men, they repent to God, they toss him over, the storm goes away, and they fear the God of Israel. Unlike Jonah, they worship God, but God foils Jonah's plans and allows a big fish. I know you heard in Sunday school it was a whale. We're not really sure. Okay, it was a big fish. That's what we know. So as Jonah is sinking, God provides this tomb of sorts for him to be laid to rest in for a short period of time. Can you imagine what it'd be like to be swallowed by something as large as a whale? I just, I thought about that and, you know, you see Veggie tail videos or little kids um, videos about it. Um, The stench of what would be rotting in the belly of that fish and you're just sloshing around as it, you know, slides through the ocean and you're just sitting there and you're thinking, oh God, my plan didn't work. (laughs) Like, what is going on? You start beating the ribs of the fish trying to let him let you out. So Jonah utters a prayer where he never really says he's sorry. But he does thank God for this thing, for not abandoning him. And I want to tell you something significant about the story of Jonah. Is that even if you're a jerk and you screw it all up, God will not abandon you. He is for you. He is trying to get your attention. He loves you. He sent his son to die for you. Yes, you are not worthy. Yes, you have done things that have caused him to probably scratch his head, but he still loves you. One of the most powerful places in scripture is a scripture I shared recently with you. Found in the New Testament, it says that even while you were yet sinning, Christ died for you. So then Jonah makes this promise to God in the belly of this fish and he says, I'll if you let me out of here I'll obey you. I promise you I will. I'll do whatever you ask of me. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever made a promise to God? If you have, have you kept it and seen it through? I thought about that as I internalized the message this week and tried to figure out where I stand in the story of Jonah. And I thought to myself, yes, I have promised God something. I promised him, God, if you give me a million dollars, I'll tithe. (laughs) But we've made promises, right? So what promise, think about it, in your relationship with God, What promise? I know I share that silly one, but we've promised him some things and sometimes we fall prey to laziness or sinfulness, whatever the case may be, and we we leave that promise behind. If you haven't kept it, I would encourage you to start again. My grandmother, my father's mom, She had a supernatural experience. Literally, it was super natural. The Lord radically saved her, changed her life, called her into the ministry to go and do missions work. She got tangled up in making money. At the end of her life, she expressed the one regret after seven husbands and after owning probably more than a dozen restaurants and making a lot of money and having all the things, her one regret was that she didn't obey God. She had a hard time at the end of her life accepting that God would still love her even though she spent her life running from him. Maybe you're like me and you've rebelled and refused to obey God. Maybe you're like Jonah in some area of your life. So I encourage you to think about that right now. So the big fish vomits Jonah up on dry land. God's taking him at his word. Okay, great. So I got your attention. Everything's going to go smoothly now. You're going to go to Nineveh and do what I've asked you to do. This time Jonah actually goes and we're told that Nineveh is a gigantic city Historians say it would take you days to cross through the middle of it because it was so large. It was so big. Jonah gets there, and on day one, his message is this. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. It's only five words in Hebrew. His sermon is really, or his message, his sermon, whatever you want to call it, is pretty odd, though. Because there's a lot missing. There's no mention of who's going to overturn it, right? Are you following along with this thought? Like, what is going on? There's no mention of what they've done wrong and what they should start doing right. There's literally, he's literally doing the bare minimum to barely scrape by. What a jerk! What an absolute jerk. And there's no mention of God in his message. Maybe maybe he was trying to sabotage his his own message. I don't know. It could be that. Maybe he was trying to ensure that the Ninevites really got destroyed. You know, well, hey, if I say it in mysterious language, maybe they won't get the whole point and then they'll all die anyway. There's like zero effort on Jonah's part. How many of us have been guilty Of times in our life where God's asked us to do something, but we give zero or less than 100%. That's like, that's for you and me today to think about. So then the king and the entire city, including all its cows, repent in sorrow and ashes So the second time, so for the second time, these evil pagans show themselves to be more responsive to God than the prophet is himself. God forgives the Ninevites, and he doesn't bring destruction on the city. You know, there's a powerful thought there, and I'll share it in just a moment. But there's something significant about the fact that what you do can change the action or reaction of God. So Nineveh does get overturned, um, and these are Jonah's enemies. They repent, and they find God's mercy. Look at verse 10 of chapter 3. It says this, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. I want you to think about this for just a moment, that your repentance... Can change God's action in your life. It's not just a cause and effect sort of thing. It goes deeper than that. It is that you having turned yourself towards him. Causes him to maybe stop the circumstances. The trial or the tribulation that he had planned for you. You say pastor what? I thought his plan for me is You know, money in the bank and prosperity and all. Sure, God wants to bless you, but he also wants to change you. And having it all doesn't really change you for the better. But needing him and expressing that need in repentance causes us to go in the right direction. So your repentance can change God's action in your life. The final chapter, chapter 4 it brings all of it really together jonah's hot under the collar he is fuming mad he's upset there's something deep in his heart that is causing him to be really ticked off that god why didn't you do what are you do you not keep your word you said you'd kill him and he utters his second recorded prayer he first tells god why he ran away in chapter one. It wasn't because he's afraid. It wasn't because of any other thing except for that he knew God is so merciful. What an idiot. (laughs) Jonah actually quotes God's own description of himself From the book of Exodus. And he throws it back at God. As an insult. That the Lord is loving. And compassionate. And he's full of mercy. So in chapter 4. He basically tells God that he knew. That he was compassionate. And that he would find some way. Some way somehow. To forgive these horrible Ninevites. Jonah then stops the conversation. With God. In chapter 4. And I I said it before, and I know that's really casual speak, but Jonah was an idiot, okay? He then prays that God will let him die. He's he's literally so angry with God that God has behaved according to his nature. That he says, you know what, just off with my head, be done with me fortunately god does not comply to jonah's stupid prayer but then god asks if jonah's anger is justified and we're going to read a portion of that in just a moment he asks him if if his anger is justifiable Jonah ignores that question and he goes outside the city because he's going to go sit on the hillside and camp out. Cause surely it's just going to be a few days and they're all going to turn their backs on God and I'm going to watch them burn. I mean, that's, have you ever, I mean, this is real emotional vulnerability. Have you ever felt like that though? Like God, it'd, it'd be okay if you helped him, but Lord, if you don't, boy, I'll be so happy. Okay, it's just me. What happens next is the it's more odd than a fish swallowing a man and him living and being spit out. What happens in chapter 4, God provides miraculously. Remember, he's the creator of the universe and he can do this. He causes a plant to grow in right in the space where Jonah has set up a little tent so he can watch it all burn he's caused a plant to supernaturally grow and become big enough to create shade do you know what castor oil is some of us who are older would know what that is it comes from a plant that has like five leaf um fingers i don't, I don't know the exact term but it's a very wide leaf and many people who studied scripture and think about that uh, that section in scripture where it says that God provided a viney plant that it would have been a plant like that. If you've ever seen like a maple leaf, imagine that the size of a man's hand; those leaves that big. So Jonah's out there and he's sweating. I mean, it's Mississippi summer times a thousand. It's hot. God has sent a wind, God's opened up the sky, there's no rain, there's no clouds. God is trying to get Jonah's attention and then he he causes this plant and Jonah loses. Then the next morning he wakes up and a worm has been sent by God to eat the plant and now the plant that provided him shade is now gone. Chapter 4, verse 7 through 11, it says this, When dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm. Do you understand how silly this is? That he's been chasing a man, trying to get the man to obey him, and yet God spoke a plant raised up out of the ground, and now God has killed the plant by having an obedient worm do the work. This is a pretty silly story. But the worm attacks the plant and the Bible says it eats the entire thing so that it withers. And verse 8, when the sun rises, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked again, kill me now. It's better for me to die than to live. Verse 9, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? I know that seems oddly phrased. Put it it in casual terms that you would understand. Do you think you're right right now to be so upset about this plant that has died? Jonah's response, it just makes me laugh. Verse nine, he says, and he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die, in fact. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not work, nor did you make grow, which came in one night and perished before the next. Should I not pity that great city, Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people and cattle? In other words, aren't people more valuable than plants? So he's trying to get Jonah to really see. Isn't it okay that God feels that way even towards his enemies? Even towards Jonah's enemies and towards God's own enemies? And that's how the book ends. We don't hear Jonah's response. We don't understand the details of what happened after that. We're left with God's words of, isn't it okay that I reach down in my mercy, my grace, and my love towards this city that has turned themselves towards me? The point of the story is not to try to figure out what Jonah's response to God in prayer was at that last minute or what the details of exactly what happened. That's not the point. The point of the book of Jonah is really, I think, to mess with you. Everything is upside down in that story. Everything looks a certain way, but then behaves a different way. God's question here can actually be addressed to you and I today. Are you okay with the fact that God loves your enemies? That's a... I mean, there are enemies for a reason. You say, well, Pastor, I live a quiet life. I don't really have any enemies. You do. You probably just don't know their names. Okay, But is it okay that God loves your enemies? That's really a thought that strikes me. Here's the deal. It should be okay with you because God loves you. And the Bible is filled, the New Testament in fact, is filled with the statements of you used to be far from God, but now you've been brought near. You used to be an enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ, but now you've accepted his love, so walk in his path. There's a ton of scripture throughout the New Testament that clarifies that for us and makes sure that we understand that's the old story, we're living in a new story, that's the old man, he's dead and gone, and we're living in newness of life now today. We previously were, the Bible says it like this in one version, we were at enmity with God. We were at odds with God, but yet he still loves us. Worship team, would you come? At the end of our services, we always have a moment where we try to reflect on the message And yes, this message happens, I didn't want to bore you with dates and things, but it happens somewhere close to the year 800 or 750 BC before Jesus came onto the scene. So if you could imagine, we're living in the year 2021 at this point. It's almost 3,000 years old, this message. The depth... And the width of God's mercy and his love is something that we, when we were unbelievers, needed to be gripped by through the work of the Holy Spirit in order to come to faith in Christ. But as believers now, if you are a believer now, it's good to be reminded of the width and the depth of God's mercy and his love and his grace towards all people. I want you to just quietly absorb these questions and I'll restate them from the message. They were really my points, but I I like the idea of asking the question today for you to consider. The first is, are you running from God like Jonah did? You say, well, not physically. I think I'm living in the city that God called me to live in or I'm doing the career he wants me to do. Well, maybe there's an area of your life that you haven't yet surrendered And we as believers even struggle with that. But if you are comprehensively running from God and you don't know him, today is the day that you can make that change. And I will not try to misguide you or lead you in a wrong direction and tell you it's gonna be an easy process. It is not an easy process, but the first step is easy. All you've gotta do is turn to him. And instead of running from him, run to him. The rest of it, as you walk with him, there are difficult moments. There are things that don't happen the way you think they should. There are circumstances that either build or tear down your faith. And there is this work in progress that happens throughout the rest of your life as a believer. But that first step is just so simple to accept his grace and his mercy. That other second question really should hit home with a lot of us. What promise have you made to the Lord that you're struggling to keep? It may very well be a promise that happened in the new year. This year, I'm going to serve my community. This year, I'm going to serve in my church. This year, I'm going to tithe regularly. This year, I'm going to fill in the blank. It could be something personal, of a personal nature. This year, I am going to, with God's help, love my spouse better than I've ever done before. So what promise have you made to God that you're struggling to keep? Only you and God know it, but I want you to revisit it today. And I wanna tell you this, God's mercy and grace is still available to you. Even though you failed and faltered, He wants you to pursue him. We all have enemies in this life. And that last thought is, is it okay that God loves your enemies? That may very well be the most remarkable demonstration of your spiritual maturity is when you can get to the place of what Matthew chapter five, when Jesus says to love and pray for your enemies. It's a very difficult task, but the true reality is this, that love empowers change in you and in others. Hate profits nothing. Hating someone who is your enemy or who's done you wrong. And it keeps on just driving in your heart. And you think about it regularly. I can't believe she said those words. I can't believe he behaved like that. I can't believe. And you have that thing ever present before you. And you're headed in the wrong direction. God instructs us to love and even to pray for them. Look at what Matthew chapter 5 says. Or listen to these words as we stand. If you'll go ahead and stand with us, we're going to worship in this last song, but I, I try to encourage you not to sing along with the song at first. Can I, I'm just going to be real with you today. There are times that I, as a believer have copped out in a service like this and been like, praise you Lord. This is a good day. What are we going to eat? And I've just kind of, I mean, that's, we all have done it. What I really believe God's word is trying to strike a chord with us today is to really absorb this message and let it sink into us. Matthew chapter five, verse 43, Jesus says, you've heard that it's been said you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. If you're his kid you act like him, okay? He says, For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You say, Pastor, you're preaching hard in this direction. I really believe that it's something that bothers a lot of believers. And I think that there's scriptural evidence. And you've heard me preach this message because God has done a work inside of my life to set me free from bitterness and anger towards people who hurt me. Towards God's people who hurt me. I've had people in the world treat me much better. Than some people in the church. The Lord has set me free from that. And I walk in that freedom. And I want you to enjoy it too. I want you to not have a root of bitterness. That springs up in your heart. I want you to work on it today. If you say pastor. I hear you loud and clear. I heard the word of the Lord. There's something that's got to change in this situation. Then make a change. Make a phone call. Initiate some contact. Forgive. If they're gone, if they're dead and gone, I've said it before, then just declare with your mouth, Lord, I forgive so-and-so. If you can't get a hold of them, there's no option for that. Lord, I forgive so-and-so. God, help me to walk in forgiveness. Lord, help me today to love those who persecute me and who are my enemies. So as you stand and the worship team begins to play, Whatever question really is on your mind today, I want you to really, really take just a moment and commit to the Lord to see that change happen. Heavenly Father, I pray over Celebrate Church. I pray that none of us would live the life of Jonah. Lord, that all of us would run towards you and not away from you towards the things you've called us to and not away from them. No more excuses, God. Help us, Lord, to not be angry that you've loved our enemies. Help us, Lord, to pray for them and to love them as you've called us to do. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray.